Hey, before we get into this week's episode of The Culture, just a quick reminder that if you want to stay up to date with the show, you can follow it in your favourite podcast app. Just search for The Culture. All right, let's get into it. Hey there, I'm Osman Faruqi, and this is The Culture, a weekly show about the latest in the world of pop culture, arts, and entertainment. It's been a big week for fans of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. One former contestant, Abby Chatfield, has announced she's in a new relationship with another former contestant, Conrad Bien Stevens, because apparently people who have been on the show can only date other people who've been on the show. It's kind of weird, I don't know, but people are very excited about it. But maybe more importantly, one of the most interesting seasons of The Bachelorette has just wrapped up. After a sustained drop in the ratings over the past few years, the show's producers announced a big shift in the core mechanics of the show. Brooke Blurton was announced as this year's Bachelorette, making her both the first Indigenous and queer woman in the role. And as a result, the contestants would, for the very first time, be a mixture of both men and women. So did this work in injecting some new energy into what has become a pretty predictable and tired format? And are there lessons for the rest of Australia's reality TV ecosystem, which has basically been unchanged for the past decade? To help review this season of The Bachelorette and discuss the future of reality TV in Australia, I'm joined by Patrick Lenton, the Deputy Arts Editor at The Conversation and the co-author of The Bachelorette recap series, All the Heterosexual Nonsense I Was Forced to Endure. Pat, thanks for jumping on the culture. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start by talking about the last few seasons or years of both The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. These shows have been on for nearly a decade now, and my sense of things is that the energy around them had started to flag a little. There was a little bit less enthusiasm for those shows, maybe because they've been around for a long time, maybe because there are just so many reality dating shows right now. Is that sense I have right, or am I just getting bored of them and I'm missing the zeitgeist? No, I think you're getting bored of them is a fairly universal feeling because it's an old franchise. You know, there's nothing, there's not only nothing new about it, but it's the same tropes delivered again and again and again with variations and also very ephemeral variations. The the characters, I mean, sorry, the contestants uh, who come in are very flash in the pan. You sort of feel like some sort of like immortal god watching these petty lives of mortals sort of <laughs> come into your sphere of influence and then just sort of die off, you know. And if you're someone like me who, for work, will have to follow every Instagram uh, of every single contestant to sort of try to get the jump on stories you'll be left to, like, years later being like, why do I follow this very boring gym bro? Like, who is he? Is this, is this a cousin? You know? Um, but I think that the reason is, is that not only is it an old franchise, it's a franchise that is, I guess, waning in originality. Mm. Um, you know, we uh, it's con- uh, contested with a lot of very new shows, and um, and a lot of these shows are trying very new, outrageous things. When we look at the success of something like The Masked Singer or um, Sexy Beasts on Netflix, you know, these are 
almost elaborate costume charades in comparison to a very old franchise that isn't actually trying anything new. I think that makes a lot of sense. Even a show like Too Hot to Handle on Netflix, mm. which is seems like your Love Island, Bachelor in Paradise kind of thing, but there is this conceit of not actually being able to have any kind of physical relationship with the other person. Absolutely. There seems to be more of a twist or a gag these days, whereas I think in the old days when The Bachelor first started back in, I don't know, the 1800s, I think, <laughs> uh, we were so surprised to see just the idea of, you know, People falling in love on television? What? You know? And I just want to go back to one thing you said before mm. about how there are so many of these contestants every season. But if you, you kind of add up every year across like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Love Island, Bachelor in Paradise, there's maybe like a hundred different people coming through that franchise over 10 years. That's like a lot of people. I feel like you can't go to a nightclub in Sydney without running into... I, it literally happened to me. I was in Sydney a couple of weeks ago and I ran into a, an ex-bachelor. Every second podcast is hosted by bachelor or ex-bachelor contestants. It seems like this has gone from being a novel show to being this overwhelming component of our culture. And maybe that's a contributing factor why it starts to feel a bit stayed. Absolutely. The uh, the kind of pipeline from Bachelor contestant to beloved media uh, mm. figure is very real. And that is one of the issues that I think has contributed to The Bachelor and The Bachelorette um, just really going down in, in ratings quite consistently for the last two to three years in their seasons. Because I think we often forget that reality TV is kind of interesting because there is a an element of reality to it. I mean, sure, it's overproduced. There's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of staged uh, issues. It's, you know, half of them are a spawn con for various <laughs> cars. But we are actually looking for something authentic in these people. And the more these characters are coming on with the intention of gaining a media career, of becoming influencers, of, you know, just we, we had someone who wouldn't stop shilling their um, Bali uh, travel Instagram a couple of years ago. Uh, and, you know, they're coming on being like, they're not intentionally here for love. They're intentionally here to launch themselves. And that people can like actually, mm. they can sense that. Mm. And so the struggle to find more and more actual like authentic weirdos, because that is also where some of the joy is like anyone who is, kind of bonkers enough to put themselves on reality TV to try to find love is inherently interesting to watch. Uh, and we're losing that because it's become such a known franchise. So I think that's really helpful to set the table, I guess, for the rest of this conversation, because this year when The Bachelorette launched, I saw more excitement than I had, I think, since the Sophie Monk season of The Bachelorette, which was this big spike in, mm. in the ratings a few years ago. And I think a lot of that comes down to The Bachelorette this year, mm. Brooke Blurton, who yes. we'd seen before on the show as yes. a contestant, but she's back as the eligible Bachelorette. Birds flying high. Being The Bachelorette. I get teary, I get emotional, I get goosebumps. You know how I feel. Because I'm the first Indigenous bisexual bachelorette. She's the first Indigenous person in that role yep. and the first queer person. Mm -hmm. How big a deal is that for the show, for fans of the show, and how did it change the dynamics of the show? The barriers that have been broken just by doing this. You know how I feel. I think it's huge. I think it's huge. 
I mean, in every sense, it's a pretty big change for the show. Um, it used to be a kind of it was almost an annual conversation. Uh, I wouldn't call it an argument because it was quite good nature, but it was an annual conversation where, especially when The Bachelorette came around for some reason, people on Twitter or social media um, would start campaigning The Bachelor or The Bachelorette to have a queer component, you know, have a queer bachelorette, we'd say. And every year there would kind of be this uh, pushback or, you know, or dead silence mostly. Yeah. But I remember um, a year or two ago... Osher Gunsberg, uh, you know, sort of said, look, I'm an ally. I want this as much as you do, and I completely believe that. But he said, in my opinion, from someone who's worked in Australian TV for a long time, here's all the reasons why it's just not going to happen. You can't sell this to an Australian audience. It's too much of a risk. And then it's hard to tell exactly what shifted, but they made that choice. Uh, I think a lot of it is because they could kind of bank on Brooke as a known uh, factor. She was popular. People liked her. She'd kind of had her heart broken by uh, Nick Cummins, the honey badger, which is just a ludicrous statement to say um, <laughs> about anyone. Um, and uh, and audiences liked her. And she's a great reality TV star because she's very generous. She's very poised, but also like personable and just not too batty, you know? <laughs> um, so for the first time, the show did end up having contestants who were both men and women. Yeah, so they said we're going to have a bisexual uh, bachelorette and we're going to do uh, mixed gender casting for the contestants, which is a, both two firsts in the, uh, in the entire franchise across the entire world. And a lot of those women were um, lesbians or bisexuals. Um, and as for the men, we have no idea if any of them were <laughs> queer. Probably not, um, which, you know, kind of also makes sense with, like, they're taking some steps, but they're also being cautious. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you mentioned earlier on that most of the conversation around queering the, the show focused on queering The Bachelorette. And it is interesting that the first step they made was having a, a, a queer woman. Mm. And, you know, obviously there's a longer history of queer women representation being seen as titillating by TV producers, by film producers, in a way that, like, male queer representation seems to have been seen as more historically threatening. And I do think it is interesting that that's the way they've gone down. I mean, you know way more about this stuff than I do. Do you think, like, firstly, is what I said right or is it terribly wrong? And do you think that it seems like there's going to be any step towards, you know, having a, a bi guy on, on The Bachelor? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Like, that, you know, there is uh, this idea of, I guess, exoticized public consumption of queer women. Uh, you know, it's... It's a much better way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that, uh, and it's very, it's very male-gazy, you know. Like, it's, it's very much like, oh, two chicks, ripper. Uh, I've never said ripper in my <laughs> life before, but it was my <laughs> best... Uh... You, you nearly convinced me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, whereas... Queer men are still seen as being very profoundly, uh, you know, like a gay twist, which is not enjoyed by, you know, by other men who aren't queer, you know. So I think that there was an element of safety there. But I think that uh, as with everything in terms of queer representation, it's always tiptoe steps. Mm. Um, but uh, even just getting queer men into the casting of the contestants rather than even as the 
bachelor would be uh, would be a great first move. <laughs> Let, let's go back to this current season, the Brooks season. Yep. So it is this historic season for all the reasons you outlined. How is that? played out on the show. You have been recapping it every week with yes. the, the wonderful uh, Beck Shaw. You've watched many, many seasons of this show. How does this one compare? What is different? What's better or worse? Interestingly, it's very much playing out in the same way that the majority of the seasons do play out. Like It's got a fairly defined formula by now, and that's a kind of mixture of group dates, single dates, cocktail parties, someone gets voted out, you know. Sometimes there's drama at the cocktail party because it's probably 4am and all they've had is champagne for an entire night, so people are getting emotional. But, you know, that's kind of around it, you know. At some point they meet some families. Um, So it's really played out pretty similarly. Um, I mean, obviously they're still dealing with some um, COVID restrictions in this season, so I think that they were pretty limited in... uh, thinking too outside the box and I think that they've done a pretty good job of like finding a lot of very socially distanced sort of uh, dates for them to go on in or around Sydney (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, but uh, yeah it's played out pretty much exactly the same except that on some dates it's two women on some dates it's a woman and a guy and I think the overwhelming vibe is actually maybe more romantic than I've ever really seen Mm. like from very early on like I think a lot of that is because Brooke is a very generous bachelorette. Like, she is very giving of herself both to the audience and to all these contestants. And then everyone seemed to have pretty good connections with Brooke. First part is I think you're a really open person. Okay. So I wanted to portray that with your face and your chest up. Oh, no. And then I use really warm colours because... I think you're a really warm person and I feel really at home whenever I'm with you and I know that I like stumble over my words all the time (laughs) but I do feel like really safe when I'm with you. And we've actually seen lots of like really great connections on dates. It was honestly strangely affecting uh, to suddenly realise that you're sitting there watching an incredibly authentic and incredibly uh, sort of steamy also quite romantic kiss between two women and you're like, Australia is watching this, Mm. you know, and not just Australia but, like, mum and dad, suburban Australia are tuning in at 7 o'clock, 7.30, and they're all seeing this and uh, and their kids are seeing this and, you know, you kind of can't, like, wind it back. It's not like it's, you know, Big Brother after dark or something. You know, you can't kind of hide this. Strangely affecting moment, strangely beautiful moment, uh, where like after making a lot of jokes and you know and kind of like campaigning half in jest because I think that there's far more important issues around uh, both queer representation and queer rights than the Bachelorette. Like I'll you know absolutely disclaim that. So it's always been half you know half yeah. joke, and then sort of seeing it, I was like, damn, this is great. This is actually a beautiful moment. Coming up, we're going to explore how the dynamic of The Bachelorette changed with the introduction of both men and women contestants. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. 
Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. So we've talked about Brooke being the first queer bachelorette. She's also the first Indigenous bachelorette. That's something that I could see a show like this saying and then completely moving away from. How have they actually, you know, talked about that or involved her her cultural background on, on this season of the show? Yeah, I mean, from from the perspective of a, you know, a viewer who is not Indigenous, but from what I could tell, it it seems to be quite a sweet and engaged manner of, uh, of you know, letting her sort of uh, kind of call the shots on how she wants to do that. So the show opened with a really very lovely welcome to country uh, with elders that she knew and has kind of allowed her to consistently refer to herself as, you know, representing um, that part of her identity. There's this lovely, probably the sweetest date and the nicest date that the show has ever, ever done was between um, Brooke and uh, that um, contestant Holly that I mentioned who have a great chemistry. And Brooke took her to weave with um, with uh, another Indigenous weaver and, um, and they did a traditional weaving that um, is uh, part of Brooke's um, community. And it was lovely. This is Tegan. Tegan is a weaver. Wow. I'm excited to have you here. I'm a proud Barkindji Yorta Yorta woman and I live off country. I use weaving as a way for me to connect back to country. So today I've brought some banana fibre, which is from your country, Brooke, Mm -hmm. and I've got some lamandra fibre, which is from your country. Well, I thought we could weave them together. I would love that. Yeah. Like, I think both of our stories. Yeah. Yeah. Together. yeah. And I thought that that was probably more groundbreaking than, for example, the Mardi Gras episode that they did, which was uh, incredibly painful. <laughs> um, just, like that felt more shoehorned uh, and, and less kind of natural and authentic to Brooke's life. That felt like a straight gaze of what a queer hmm. bachelorette should have. Hmm. The show, I think both The Bachelor The Bachelorette as well as shows like MAFS have also been kind of vehicles for different kinds of social discussions, particularly mm. around gender relations. The Bachelorette more so, I think, than The Bachelor because you kind of have these light, like lots of men drinking a lot of alcohol and like fighting over a woman essentially. And it's exposed, you know, a lot of toxicity at the heart of uh, masculine culture. With this particular season, with the injection of both women and male contestants, what has that been like? Have we seen the the conversation shift? Have we seen, you know, the men and the women talking to each other about the different ways in which they they kind of play the game? Yeah, definitely. There's there's been a difference in the sense of like competition. Often even in the way when there's a bachelor and then there's a lot of women, there tends to be 
perhaps a bigger sense of rivalry. And then definitely with The Bachelorette and there's a whole bunch of men, it's not just rivalry, it's kind of egoism and, you know, really poorly played out toxic masculinity. And there's been less of that. There has been a little bit of tribalism between genders. Uh, That's one of the interesting things. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so I guess... um, Especially on, like, uh, group games, um, which, you know, or group dates, I guess they're technically called, which are never enjoyable anyway. Um, There tends to be this idea of, like, and maybe this is pushed by the producers more than an actual organic thing, but the girls will kind of tend to be like, we've got to get a girl through to, you know, to win this date with Brooke. And then the boys will be like, oh, the girls are really winning. The boys have got to sort of step up. And they're not artificially separated like that. It just tends to sort of, like come about and that has reduced the the less contestants there have been going through but um th- that is definitely one thing i noticed that's really interesting and we should also flag we're recording this just before the finale airs yes. so by the time you're listening to this we will know who wins oh yes um but i wonder whether i've been thinking about this do you think whether brooke ends up choosing a man or a woman do you think that will kind of influence or colour the way people think and talk about the first season of The Bachelorette that had a bisexual contestant on it? It's inevitable, you know, uh, because the the case is that people still see bisexuals in heterosexual presenting relationships as being uh, inherently unqueer, even though at least one half of that relationship is queer. So there is there is definitely that judgment that, oh, just went for a straight relationship, mm. which is, you know, untrue. And then if she does choose a woman, it's often seen as well like, well, yeah, that's why she's bisexual because she obviously wants to choose mm. a woman, you know, even though it's technically uh, and definitionally about a 50-50 sort of split. So I think that um, I think that, that if she chooses a man, there will be a lot of... Uh, a lot of queer people who are in one way or another disappointed... Um, I think that I, I really hope not. I hope that, you know, they have been enjoying the sort of journey for her and support her in mm. her choice. And I think that there are a lot of straight people who won't really understand. <laughs> <laughs> and it is an unenviable position to be in because when you are the first and the only person in that kind of show from that kind of community, there's this enormous amount of expectation on you to deliver for everyone when you're also just trying to live your life and find the love of your life. That's Yeah, that's right. And, like, Brooke has been very clear in the sense that she said that she's happy to refer to herself as bisexual or pansexual or queer, but she's never really worried about labels and she's never really worried about, uh, you know, kind of that part of things. And she's always just wanted to love who she wants to love. Um, And to the extent that in uh, her first season on, um, uh, on the Honey Badgers one, she was like, I don't really want to be referred to as bisexual. I just want to, you know, say that I've dated some women before. So for me, when I was in those relationships, I looked beyond what they were as female and I really loved for who they were as people. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not I'm a bisexual or a lesbian or anything like that. I'm a big lover of people and who they are. And, yeah, I just... I just really don't want to be judged on that. So she's shifted that conversation around. She's all, and she's been very, uh, very good about like understanding that she is, even if she doesn't want to, representing a community mm. on this show. And she's been very into that and very, you know, which is great. 
But like there is this element of how much of that is being projected on you and how much of that is being forced on you simply by being the first to do so, you know. Totally. Um, Patrick, there's been some reports that this season has failed because it's apparently the lowest rating yet. And some media outlets have suggested that because it went quote-unquote woke by having an Indigenous woman and a queer woman, uh, that is the reason why audiences have turned off in droves. But how woke can you get? An Aboriginal bisexual. I mean, it's just fantastic. So how did it go in the ratings? Well, Andrew, the short answer is not well. Um, the long answer is that the opening was actually the worst opening episode in the history of the franchise. It opened to just 397,000 viewers, which is lower than the project on a good night. And that's a. I know that you've been kind of digging into this question a little bit more. I don't follow TV ratings super closely. It kind of does seem on the surface that perhaps it's not doing as well as I might have expected, just given the amount of social media conversation. But what's what's really going on? What do you make of that sort of critique? Yeah, it's it, it's there's both an element of truth in that the ratings aren't great and a complete beat up uh, by exactly the kind of people who you would uh, expect to do a beat up about, like, you know, woke TV failing to get a whole bunch of clicks from, you know, angry conservative people. But the interesting thing is, Andrew, uh, that the producers of the show have come out and said they're not bothered about the low ratings and that they're, they're, the show <laughs> is actually the most critically acclaimed series of The Bachelorette ever. I don't know who's critically acclaiming it. I mean, maybe it's sort of an inner circle of wokies, wokies who like that kind of thing. But either way, despite... So basically the TV ratings that weird system which we somehow, uh, you know, base an entire industry around have been reducing for uh, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette consistently for quite a while. Um, Brooks' season uh, did premiere to low initial ratings, but no, not actually that much lower than the previous season of The Bachelorette did and not that much lower than the, uh, Jimmy's Bachelor season, which happened this year as well. It was pretty much on the same page as those and reflecting a wider trend. But then what the interesting thing was, once we started counting all those digital uh, 10-play streams and stuff like that, then we actually started going to, oh, it's actually doing quite well. And it's been growing in numbers very healthily. Still not, We're still not talking Sophie Monk season mm. uh, level, but very, very healthily since that, and especially in one demographic, which is the ages of 16 to 39. In that demographic, it's consistently been number one, the most watched show on television that night in that demographic. So saying that it's done badly is actually a really strange beat up um, because it's actually doing very, very well. It makes a lot of sense when you put it that way, because the kind of prime demographic for a show like this, particularly a show that seems to be by the decision to put Brooke as The Bachelorette, aiming for younger audience. Who under the age of like 30 is watching three hours of terrestrial television a night, three times a week? So it's, oh, it's seven o'clock, time to like turn on channel 10. That's not how anyone watches TV. Uh, and it would make a lot of sense that, that people would be catching up on, on weekends or even, you know, I think one thing that I find harder to quantify about this show you and I both used to work at Drunkie Youth Media mm. Company and uh, some of our colleagues there at Punky, the sisters that used to do Bachelor recaps, video and, and written recaps, and you've 
you do Bachelor recaps now. Mm. There is a huge like secondary industry around this show that generates millions and millions of views. I would say probably in aggregate more than people who watch the show. Mm. So even if like the terrestrial TV ratings are down, that is in so many ways the least significant way to measure the cultural impact of not just the show generally, but this particular season, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, Junkie's audience was pretty heavily millennial and our recaps that Beck and I did back when we hosted them on Junkie were consistently the the most read article. You know, it, it was it would get massive amounts of traffic. And you're like, well, if they're here, if we can see them here, and they wouldn't be reading the recap if they didn't have some interest in The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, then why isn't that being reflected in the in the TV rating system? And it's like, well, it's because they're not young people. <laughs> <laughs> After the break, it's time to survey the rest of Australia's reality TV landscape. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. The Bachelorette and The Bachelor and these issues we've been talking about them. And I, I guess I'm just using myself, but also people around me as a bit of a proxy for this conversation. Used to be really excited by those shows, by shows like MasterChef, even The Block, The Voice, Big Brother, Dancing with the Stars. There was some element of excitement to them when they emerged on our screens 10, 15 years ago. But now we're 10, 15 years into the future and the shows have barely changed. Mm. And they feel particularly outdated when we now have the ability to access reality TV from around the world. And there does seem to be more vision, more experimenting, more risk-taking happening in other jurisdictions. I mean, The Block to me, the fact that The Block is like one of, if not the most watched shows in Australia and has been for maybe a decade or more. Next year will be the biggest block ever as our contestants take on 10 acres each in our first ever tree change. Fundamentally depressing because it sort of sums up Australian culture right now, which is that you try and get a house, you renovate a house, you sell that house, and who, how much money you make from selling that house, you win the show. But also in this country, you win life. Here this afternoon, done, One finished, more, all silent, done before we go. Four million two hundred fifty-six thousand a bit now. Quickly, quickly. Four million. Wow. Oh my God. $966,000. ridiculous. Oh. Thanks, Scotty. No, no worries. Good on you. Come here, oh, mate. Mummy and Daddy just want a lot of money. <laughs> Do you want a pony? To me, reality TV shouldn't be such an endorsement of one of the worst elements of modern Australian society. So there's a depressing element to it for me as well. Why do you think it is that Australian reality TV seems to have ossified in this space? One of the interesting things is that there is, I'm going to show my sort of misunderstanding of like how ecosystems work, but there's not enough predators 
uh, you know, there's not enough um, sort of alpha predators to come in that will pick them off if they just sort of do badly. Uh, instead, we're given kind of the same thing over and over again because the audience is happy to just watch these very same sort of things. That said, ratings are down across the board. Um, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense evolutionary science-wise, but I understand what you mean. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. just, it's working at the moment. So what's the motivation to do something more interesting? Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons is, and we definitely saw this uh, over the last two years through the pandemic, is that people in Australia crave a wholesome element from their reality TV. They're actually quite happy to watch something that isn't going to be confronting. So they're quite happy to watch uh, something on, you know, something like MasterChef, which is people getting along and, you know, having cooking competitions, you know, or like the success overseas of like the Great British Bake Off, for example. It's a very good example. It's perfect shape and it's very yeah, good flavour. It's got no marks on it. It's got a couple of things there. Beautifully eaten crust. This is a lovely texture. I think it tastes very good. It does taste very good. This one has... That is actually one of my favourite... It, it is my favourite reality show. Me too. And because there is no drama no. at all. Even I think MasterChef is closer to that. Yes. But there is still drama on MasterChef. The way yeah. that show is produced, the music, the ad breaks, the way it's all kind of cut together is to create this momentum. Mm. And obviously Bake Off has a competitive element, but yeah. it is just like very lovely, wholesome weirdos baking scones. Yeah. And and you can't make that too dramatic, so you just lean into how silly and fun it is. And I wonder where that show is in Australia. Like, there is a great Australian bake-off. It's not that great. Yeah. It hasn't really resonated. Probably the equivalent in terms of, uh, like, family-friendly, uh, wholesome reality is probably Lego Masters mm. at the Which moment. Which is quite popular. Re- really, yeah. Quite popular, really fun to watch. I, yeah. You know, I really enjoyed that over the pandemic as well. Callum Bilsey, you probably want to know what your advantage is. Halfway through this build, you can push someone else's apartment off their desk. Oh. Oh. Wow. Oh, man. No, obviously, I'm joking. It's a bit of a stitch-up. Wow, that's the Lego Masters mean edition. But interestingly enough, uh, before I forget this point, it's kind of interesting to sort of uh, say that we're kind of this, uh, you know, riskless ecosystem of reality TV in comparison to overseas because Australian reality TV is massive in the UK, for example, because our Love Island, our maths, our those kind of like, this is a bad descriptor, but let's say those trashy shows, mm. you know, like those ones which are about putting a whole bunch of hot idiots mm. together. Letting and, them loose you know, and seeing what drama is is, is going to occur, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let's, like, are they going to, are they going to fuck or fight, you know? Um, <laughs> it's another great name for a reality show. <laughs> fuck or fight. <laughs> sort of like Wheel of Fortune, but sexy. <laughs> but um, the Brits love them. The Brits are obsessed and their franchises are kind of measured against our ones because they've got... I think Is it they've... because Australians are just like lunatics? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they see us as being unfiltered and dangerous and a lot of it is because of our, like, complete love of swearing, yeah. you know. We forget that around the world that's seen as, like, mm. dangerous lunatic behaviour. <laughs> um, but also because in the UK we've got an accelerated thing of what we've seen here and what is probably the problem with um, Bachelor and Bachelorette, where is it that interesting, regardless of the format, to watch a whole bunch of wannabe influencers come in? Do we get any genuine feeling from them? Even in the, like, the messy 
idiot setups. Yeah. Influencers are coming in thinking this is my job. Yeah. They're not going to be messy idiots, you yeah. know. So, so they're losing out on that. Whereas for some reason, I don't know why, Australia keeps being able to find more genuine messy idiots. We are a country full of them. Yeah. Um, and I, and I do think just to circle back to the Bachelor and the Bachelorette. There's this tension with the format of the show that I don't know how they're going to resolve because as society has become more progressive in terms of how it views relationships and sexuality and even as the show embraces people with different sexualities, the entire concept of the show is very conservative. It's about going on dates, getting a kiss, getting a rose, meeting the family until you end up in a monogamous and overwhelmingly potentially up until this season, heterosexual relationship. Mm. And I kind of think that might be a factor in maybe some of the the lack of engagement is that feels increasingly disconnected from how so many people live or how they think relationships should be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of that is the tropes, you know, like um, the show re- relies on a hyper-elevated notion of kind of like courtly love, um, you know, that we sort of see reflected in things like romantic dramas and, and rom-coms and stuff like that, where there's, there is this uh, artificial happily ever after that they want these people to have. And, you know, whether or not that actually gets kind of reflected sort of remains to be seen. It's kind of, I think it's one of the reasons why um, our queen, Abby Chatfield, is so popular because she went on um, Matt Agnew's season and she was great, you know, like really, really wonderful, very authentic, very honest, very clear communicating, but also outwardly horny as hell. There is this scene, like probably the sexiest bachelor bachelorette scene that I, you know, that hasn't been between like sort of gross people where she's making out with Matt Agnew on the beach and our poor little science boy is just getting grinded on by this absolute glamazon. You're really horny. <laughs> um, I felt this is the wrong time slot for what I want to do to him. <laughs> Obviously we have a lot of sexual chemistry, a lot of tension going on and it seems to be a boiling point. Thank God we're on a private beach, I guess. It's like, oh, no wonder she didn't quite fit into the winning kind of element because she's actually too interesting and too sexy for this format, which relies on outdated, quite prudish sort of notions, as you say. You've been talking, and I think it's such an interesting point, the way that the show has evolved to to now everyone is so aware of what happens when you go on that show. You blast out of it with, you know, hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers and you're an influencer now. There is a new reality show. As much as we've been talking about the lack of investment or experimentation in Australia, and it's been backed by Netflix, I think it's interesting that it's come from outside the traditional kind of Australian commercial TV networks. And it seems to be leaning into this idea of what happens when you actually just get influences and put mm. them together and see what happens. It's, it's Byron Bay's. It's mm-hmm. been very controversial since it was announced. A little bit of pushback from the Byron Bay community. It is essentially about exploring the influencer lifestyle in Byron Bay. Netflix has announced plans for a docu-soap following hot Instagrammers living their best lives, creating the best drama content, hashtag no filter guaranteed. Locals fear its focus on social influencers will misrepresent Byron Bay on the world stage, attracting the wrong kind of attention. I 
am very interested to watch this show because mm. I think accepting that influencers want to be on reality TV is interesting because you're not there's no conceit you know mm. there's no artifice around that that's some of the authenticity we're talking about exactly yeah. it's authentic in the fact that they're just acknowledging that this is what's going on yeah and I do think that it's it's new and I think it's smart I think you know the pushback from Byron Bay I found confusing and we'll probably talk about that in detail another time when the show comes out but there is also a story to tell about what happens when a town becomes internationally famous. That was that amazing Vanity Fair article mm. for being the playground of the rich and the famous, of actors, of musicians, of influencers. What I'm excited to see about this show is the fact that we're going to get reality TV about an interesting and important cultural moment in mm. Australia that has people ready-made to be on it because they're already influencers. Are you across the show? Are you interested in it? How do you feel about it? Oh, I'm definitely interested in it because I think that what reality TV always has to be is bottled lightning. You know, it's it's uh, it, you know it's caged chaos. And one of the really interesting criticisms that I often see, you know, in the comment sections of articles for various publications that I've worked for, not that I should ever read the comment sections, but whatever, Rookie is people saying it's all scripted. Why would you watch this nonsense? And it's like that's an astonishing. An astonishing proposition. The idea that there's a whole bunch of people writing this utter, like, you know, spectrum of banality to weirdness to, you know, to all just the, you know, all the weird stuff that we see. The idea that someone's actually writing that and then there's actors doing these sort of lines and and saying the, you know, like, just very normal things that they're saying is ridiculous. And so I think that we... Um, Not only is it ridiculous, but it's like a huge part of the reason there are so many of these shows yeah. is because all these networks have Australian content quotas to fill yeah, yes. of Australian-made productions, and it's much cheaper to not pay writers oh. and actors by doing reality TV than by creating scripted shows. Absolutely. That, that's why our free-to-air television ecosystem is dominated entirely by reality TV. We don't have the numbers to justify putting money into, you know... HBO-style dramas. Yeah, 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 because we're competing against streaming, which is, you know, impossible. One of the interesting things is that reality TV producers know what they're doing to an extent. They're very, you know, they're very clever uh, at what they do, but it's more like a social experiment than anything else. They basically push as many different factors into a small space as possible and then shake it up and then be like... Let's hope something happens. And I think that using influencers transparently as agents of chaos, because influencers are weird, you know? Like, they're very like weird. They're weird and they're obviously – they're kind of like uh, – if you put as many theatre kids as you could find into, like, a, a small airless space – two things would happen. Like, you know, they'd they'd either hate each other or love each other and both would be really funny. <laughs> um, Speaking from experience. Yes, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, and so putting a whole bunch of influences into a confined situation, uh, you know, putting the camera on them so that they, like, kind of go mad trying to, like, work out what they should or shouldn't be doing, absolutely feeding them full of sugary alcohol and barely any food and no sleep... Of course you're going to get something interesting, you know, like it, so I think it's a I think it's a good idea. <laughs> hey Pat, that's a great spot to leave it. Thank you so much for the conversation. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. The Culture is a weekly show from Schwartz Media. It's produced by Bez Zoda and Atticus Basto. 
Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. Make sure to follow us on Instagram. We're at theculture.pod. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next week.